This is Pastoring Out Loud, a podcast for Bethlehem Baptist Church's South Campus in Lakeville, Minnesota. Are you interested in learning more about our church? Go to Bethlehem.church forward slash south. In order to stay, stay kind of on schedule, uh, we're going to go ahead and get started. There's some more people trickling in. I see people getting out of their cars. You know, it's cold this morning. People are having a hard time getting going. But we're going to start. Um, so thanks for coming uh, to Sunday School this morning. We have a special guest here uh, to share with us all the way from... Is, is Chevrolet a, a suburb of Washington, D.C.? Yeah, it's a... She- First suburb out on the Maryland side of Washington, D.C., Cheverly. He's an elder at uh, Cheverly Baptist Church. We have Jonathan Lehman with us. He's the editorial director of Nine Marks. Um, he has a wife. What's your wife's name again? I'm sorry. Shannon. And he has four daughters. And he's graciously agreed to come and be with us in our uh, below zero, you know, Minnesota winter. Um, so I'm just going to pray uh, for him as he gets started here. And then he's going to take it away. So, Lord, thank you so much that, um, that you've given us a building, a place to gather. Um, even though it's cold out, we can come in and we can be your church um, this morning. And so as we gather, would you meet us by your spirit? Would you uh, sanctify us in your truth, in your word, and encourage us and convict us and correct us and admonish us and use Jonathan uh, to do that? And so all the things that you want to do this morning, we pray that you would do them and even more than we could ask or imagine. Give Jonathan clarity, give him uh, fresh affections for Jesus, and let those overflow through the word uh, to us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Nick. As he was talking, I was literally uh, texting a photo of my my car dash, it was a negative one to my wife and daughter. So it was negative five when I woke up. It's heating up. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, grateful to be with you. Grateful to be with uh, some of the brother elders yesterday. And um, I've long been a fan of your church and I pray for your church. And grateful for its ministry, its, its teaching and benefits in my own life and lives of a lot of my friends. So grateful for you. Thank you for receiving me and uh, the opportunity to, to share a few things with you uh, from the Lord's Word. I'm uh, going to be thinking about authority as a good and dangerous gift this morning. And let me start by asking you the question, is authority a good thing, just to kind of think about, not answer, is authority a good thing or a bad thing? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I think if, if, you know, you're meditating on it and you're, you know, kind of sitting in a safe space like this and you're intellectualizing it, you can see it's a good or bad thing. But at the same time, I think we probably also have a gut sense most people have a gut sense, and that gut sense is like, ah, or ah, right? Kind of have a gut sense. And, and in many respects, if, okay, not just the sort of people who show up in a Sunday school class, you're kind of a special sorting. People would show up at 
9 a.m. In a, in a church building, if I were just to go out and ask the general population, what do you think of authority? Is it a good thing or a bad thing? You know, and they're, and they're, they're all going to have a gut sense. And on the whole, well, I, th- I think it probably depends on what kind of authority you've experienced. You know, did you have a, a, an encouraging, upbuilding father or an angry father? What were your coaches, teachers, bosses like? Military superior officers like? Were they for your good or were they just using you for their own? And I think a lot of our experiences determine that gut sense. Even if we intellectualize it one way or another, our experiences determine our intuitions, our gut sense of, yeah, authority seems like a good thing or like a bad thing. I'm going to avoid it. I want to embrace it. You know, and so, so when preachers get up here and start talking about things like the headship of a husband or, or elders should be men or what, whatever, whatever the conversation is, you know, you have that kind of gut response. Our culture has a gut response to these things in many respects based on people's experiences. We let our experience determine what we think of authority, right? Isn't that basically how it goes? Right? Makes sense so far? What do you think of God's authority? What's your gut sense? Like, ah, yes, good's ahead. I know he's good. He's going to use his rule for good in my life, even if I can't always see it. Is that your gut sense? Or is it more uh, dread? He seems distant. What, What do you think of God's authority? Westerners, I think I was given a title, something about state of the culture in in this. So let's think about culture just briefly before we get to Bible. Um, Westerners have waged a war against authority, at least since the Enlightenment, right? We can't trust the authority of the church, the king, the father, the husband. Eventually, you get in the late 19th century and early 20th century, you, we can't trust the authority of science. We can't trust the authority of words and what was postmodern deconstructionism all about. We, we can't trust the, the, the authority of the press or party bosses or, or even lately, the biology of our own bodies can't be cramped in by that. I know who I am. Deep down, I, I feel. And I would say even over the last few years, this angst about authority has grown up inside of our churches too. Christians have been impacted by the politics of the Donald Trump era, the Me Too and the Church Too, hashtag Church Too movements, the, the episodes of police brutality that iPhone videos have, have caught the, the COVID quarantines and the shutdowns as government trying to overimpose itself. These pastors say, let's take a stand. Other pastors say, oh, let's wait. 
you know, we're, we're having these conversations and they all come in these arguments, let's be honest, these divisions. And, and a lot of it, the very center of a lot of it is, is this question of authority. Is authority a good thing or a bad thing? And who has the right to exercise authority after all, right? Social media is suffuse. They're on Twitter or Facebook, it's suffuse with consternation and angst over this person, that person's, this pastor, that pastor's exercise of authority. And we have podcasts, long 13-episode podcast about the rise and the fall of prominent church in another city. And we get Christianity Today articles and Julie Roy articles and so many other articles about the failures of this authority figure, that authority figure, and, we're, and, we get, and then we get these books. We get these, these books that are telling us complementarianism is, is really just kind of a form of celebrating John Wayne. And we've let our views of John Wayne determine what we actually think the Bible teaches. It's not the Bible, don't you realize? It's, it's just kind of a toxic John Wayne-informed masculinity. And so you get these history books saying things like that, and then then Christians start to argue about it, and then there's all of this angst again about this topic of authority. Like Westerners have for centuries, we wonder about dismantling our own structures. Complementarianism might have experienced a brief surge of popularity in the early in the 90s and the 2000s, but best-selling books today dump on it. There's been too many abusive husbands. We, we could tell the stories. We know it. We, we need independent investigations. I mean, can we really trust our pastors? I know, the, the, I know the Bible says something about submitting to our pastors, but they've proven untrustworthy. We need an independent investigation, right? That's just kind of the prominent language across the land among many evangelical spaces, right? Or, or academics. I'm not sure I can trust the pastor. Can I trust the academic, though? I mean, they're objective. They're, they're thoughtful. They're sitting and thinking. They're, they're not trying to lord it over me like these pastors are. And that's, that's the angst. That's what a lot of people are feeling. No doubt about it, the more politically acceptable posture, at least on Christian social media these days, is to be a little more angsty about authority and reform theology and complementarianism. I, I know you guys have been experiencing some of these things firsthand as a church. And uh, not in here to wade in judgment, any of that, but just, just to kind of look at us. Okay, this, this is what's on the table before us, right? This is, this is where we've been living. These are the conversations we're having. That's, that's, that's all I'm trying to bring out with all of that. My plan right now is to then think just about authority. Is it a good thing or a bad thing? And if, if, if so, how? And what does the Bible say? How, how should we understand this idea of authority from the Bible? And so what I want to do is do a quick biblical theology of authority and then draw out some lessons and then maybe apply it and think about it with you in different domains. Uh, I got seven points. Number one, what does the Bible say? What's the Bible say? Eight texts. Uh, first text. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and rule. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and rule. Genesis one twenty eight. right? 
God gave them dominion, Adam and Eve, dominion. He gave them rule. He gave them authority. And that's what it means to be created in God's image, at least in part. To image God, we rule like God. We rule on behalf of God, which is to say the issue of authority, you might not like it, but it goes to the very heart of your existence as a human being. Because you, friend, were created to rule. God crowned you, says Psalmate, with glory and honor. And you are to fill the earth and subdue it in some form or fashion. And as you do that, what do you do? You, you image, like a, like a mirror held up to the sun, you're imaging the rule of God as you bring his rule to the earth. That's why we were created. And, and, part of it, right? There's, there's more. That's why we were created to, to actually, that this is the heart of it, to, to display him, image him and his glory as we bring his character, his holiness, his righteousness, his love in our, whatever little plot of garden we're given and, and domesticate that garden, bring in some rose bushes, some apple trees, Right? Raise children, mess of shoes by the front door, organize those shoes, build, build the playground, build, build the city. And in all of this, showing the world what he is like as I, I image him. That's why you were created and placed here. What is authority? Authority is an authorization Right? Authority, authorization. It is a moral license. It is a permission slip. What's the difference between power and authority? Anybody? Not a rhetorical question, real question. Difference between power and authority? Yes, Caleb. Uh, power means you can, authority means you have the right. Yeah. Did you guys hear that? Power means you can. It's, it's the ability, the strength to do something. I have the power to pick up this chair. Right? Authority means I have the moral right, the moral license. I've been authorized to pick up this chair, or drive a truck, or lead a, you know, an office, or whatever it is. I have the moral right to do those things. I've been authorized to do those things. And here in Genesis 1, we see that God authorizes humanity, men and women, to exercise power over creation to subdue it. Second text, Genesis 3.3. 3. Did God really say? Verse 4, you will not die. And so she listens to him, it, and Adam listens to her, God says, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you. What, 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 how, how can we understand what Adam and Eve did there in terms of this conversation? Well, well God had given them an authorization and he put up boundary lines around that authorization. Here, you can eat of all of this and you can do this, but not that. Well, they sought an alternative authorization. They, they didn't have a license to walk over there, but Satan shows up and says, I'll give you a license to walk over there and to eat that. And they're like, oh, yeah, we like that idea. So they sought an alternative 
authorization, an alternative permission slip to do what they wanted to do. You see? And what results? Death. God designed the universe. He knows how the world works, right? His law, his rule is for our good. You know, I want to ask the guy who made the computer how to operate the computer. But that's not what they wanted to do. And so what results? Well, God's judgment, the curse, chaotic world. Third text, Exodus 5.2. Another example of the same thing at a much larger scale. Pharaoh, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? Uh, Pharaoh does not acknowledge the authority of the Lord. He, does, he thinks he needs his doesn't think he needs the Lord's authorization and said he thinks he can write his own permission slips. Fourth text, 2 Samuel 23, 3 and 4, King David's last words, says verse 1. King David's last words. King David knows a little bit about authority, probably, I'm assuming, right? What are his last words? Here are some of his last words. When one rules over people in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God... He is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth. It's, it's a beautiful picture, isn't it? You, you see the sun coming down. It's not Minnesota sun. It's like something a little more tropical, I'm sure. <laughs> you see the sun coming down, bringing heat, giving vitality, and then the rain the rain trickling into the dirt and strengthening the grass. You know, I love it in, in, in June. My grass turns green again where it's been kind of brown in the winter. So the rain comes down and brings green and life and vitality and growth to that grass and it grows up. Right? When one rules in the fear of God, he is like something that nourishes Something that strengthens, something that grows, something that creates, something that empowers, something that makes strong, right? Good authority strengthens and grows. Fifth text, Psalm 72. Psalm 72 applies the lessons of 2 Samuel 23. It presents this picture of a messianic royal son, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal, capital S, son. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people. Long may he live. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. Does grain grow on the tops of mountains? But somehow under his rule... Grain is growing even on the top of the mountain. May, may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. What's that remind you of? May his name endure forever. You guys have seen Beauty and the Beast or Cinderella. The castle's under a curse, right? Everything's dark. What happens when the curse is broken? Light comes, it's beautiful, everything transforms. I feel like these verses, 
Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people. May there be an abundance of grain in the land and the tops of the mountains may it weigh. What, what is that? That's, that's like, it's like the Bible's Disney broken spell moment, right? You, you see the flourishing, you see the light, you see the prosperity. Blossoming people in the cities. Sixth text. Mark 10. Don't be like the Gentiles who lorded over others, but rule like he rules who, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here is the king of Psalm 72. Seventh text, John 5, 19. The son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the, the father does, the son does likewise. And, and let me throw another text in, in, into this one, a few chapters later. 8.28, I do nothing of my own authority, says Jesus, but speak just as the father taught me. So King Jesus, incarnate King Jesus, obeys. I only do what the Father taught me. I only speak what the Father taught me. And what we have a picture here of is authority and obedience, authority and submission being two sides of the same coin. Go, go, go back to the garden. Go back. What does it mean to image God? It means to obey him and, and look like him so that as you watch me, you are watching a mere reflection of God. But what do I have to do to image and let you see God in me? I have to submit to, obey God. So, so if God is walking through the snow uh, and, and leaving footprints, I'm, I'm putting my feet in exactly the same places. If, if God is saying, here is righteousness, I, I pursue that. Righteousness. God says, here is love. I pursue that love. What does King Jesus do? I do nothing. I say nothing except what the Father tells me. Why, why do you think Paul says he is the image of the invisible God? Right? Exact representation of his being. The incarnate son Shows us what God is like because he, he, he obeys God perfectly, entirely. And so God gives him all. He's got all this, so what is he given all of? All authority and dominion, right? All, all authority in heaven on earth. It's just because, you know. Eighth text. 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure, we will also reign with him. And the word reign here translates literally as be kings with. We will share in his rule. What, what, what does it mean we will share in his rule? It, it means that we are being conformed to his image from one degree of glory to the next in the here and now. And one day we will do it perfectly. We're learning to step in his footprints now and image him now from one degree of glory to the next, obeying, submitting, and one day, well, it's just like we look just like him. We look, we look like that because we're doing the same thing. Do you see? And we're reigning over creation as Adam was supposed to do, as Christ did, as we will perfectly. You see? 
two broad lessons. Number one, or I guess this is point two. Point one of what does the Bible say? Here's point two. Authority in creation and redemption is a gift that brings blessing. Authority in creation and redemption is a gift that brings blessing. And God blessed them and said, be fruitful and Why does God give us authority? Why does he give it to you and to me and to your children and to your husband and to your wife and to the people who work for you and to the members of the church if you're an elder? Why does he give authority authority to an elder? To create, to author. Authority authors The king of creation, what does he do? He creates creation. He uses his authority to create a world and he calls us to image him by doing the same thing, by creating, by authoring, authoring life. That's what we're to do with any authority, any stewardship you have, no matter what stewardship you have. You are to empower and to arrange and organize and build and encourage. That's the job, no matter what the job is. He means everybody created in his image to do that. And not only that, good authority doesn't just work from the top down. It also works from the bottom up from this perspective. And so God is our rock. We, he gives us a place to stand so that we can do what he calls us to do. And what do I do for my children? What should I be doing for my wife? What should you do be, for, be doing for your employees to, to, to be a rock for them to stand on so they can do what they are called to do. Let, let me supply you, let me fund you, let me resource you, let me guide you so you can get on with what God is calling you to do. That's my job as your leader. I wanna author life in you, which means enabling you to author life in others. That's the job. Husband, parent, manager, whatever, elder, You need to listen to me, though. I'm trying to author life in you, but but, but that means you need to listen to my instructions about how to do it because God has given me this office of authority, so, so listen to my words. You can eat that, you can't eat that. You can go here, you can't go there. Try these, don't try those. Trust me. Good authority in that regard binds in order to loose, it corrects in order to teach, it trims in order to grow, it disciplines in order to train, it legislates in order to build, it judges in order to redeem, it studies in order to innovate. In other words, authority comes in and puts up boundaries, it puts in structures, it puts up limits, it makes laws, but the purpose of those laws, limits, boundaries, structures are for the purpose of creation and life and growth. I'm, I'm gonna cut, I remember the first time I cut a rose bush, I, we had... The previous owners of the house had left these rose bushes there. I've never, you know, I've never done anything with rose bushes. And everybody says, you got to cut them to make them grow. And I'm like, okay, I'm just going to do that on trust. Let me try that. And sure enough, I, you know, I cut some and I felt really bad doing it. But, but the following spring, poof, right? It was, it worked. Good authority is the teacher teaching. You do not want to go home and spend two hours on this. I know you don't, student. And my daughter's like, Dad, teacher's terrible, all this work. But she's getting strong from it. Good authority is the teacher teaching, the coach coaching, the mother mothering. 
good authority is the rules for a game. I want to play the game. But I'll play it. You got you to know the rules. You're going to be bound in by those rules, but those rules let you to play the game and have fun. It is the lines on the road. I don't want to be bound in by lines. Well, good luck getting from here to there if nobody's paying attention to the lines on the road. So yes, authority constrains, but it constrains in order to empower. At least if it's good authority. Good authority is a covenant for lovers. Rules for a game, lines on the road, covenant for lovers. Oh, we love each other. We don't need to sign a piece of paper. Let's see how long that lasts. Who you're really loving after all. No, I, I want to be constrained by that covenant. Because my feelings of love, frankly, aren't always there. But I'm making a decision for love for her, and so I'm going to bind myself by this covenant. And that binding, that constraining of this marital covenant actually is going to take a 50-year process to create something much stronger and more beautiful than, oh, we love each other, let's just live together. That's not gonna create something very beautiful over time. Good authority says, trust me, I'm gonna give you a garden to create a world. Just keep my commandments. I love you. Good authority obeys the holiness and law of God even when you're the incarnate son of God. Good authority loves. Good authority is generous. Good authority passes out power. It delegates. It's not, it doesn't hoard. It's not about control. It passes out opportunities for power so that those underneath will grow. Think of David's words again, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes the grass to sprout from the earth. Good authority strengthens and grows. This, again, this is authority in creation and authority in redemption. If I'm thinking of the Bible storyline, start here in creation, as it was meant to be and as it can be through redemption. Yeah, uh, a question, husbands, you need to ask yourself is, would your wife say your uses of authority makes her strong? Is she more beautiful today than she was when you married her? Because she is more vibrant, more fearing of the Lord and not fearing of man more confident in who she is and who God created her to be, better at using the gifts God has given her. And if I asked your wife, would she say, oh yeah, my, my, my husband uses his authority so carefully. I mean, he uses it, but he uses it so carefully and so clearly for my good and not his own gain. Is that what your wife would testify? You might ask her over lunch. If I asked your kids, what would your kids say about your use of authority? Uh, that is for your own sake? Go get me that. Or do they know you use their authority? They, they're confident. Uh, sometimes dad, yeah, he comes down on me. He, you know, he does discipline me, but I, but I know he loves me and I know it's for my good. And I know he's trying to make me strong. He's trying to make me better, make me smarter, make me faster. Does he exasperate you? Um, no. No. I love my dad's authority. I, I want him to use more authority 
Long may he live, say they of the, of the Messianic son in Psalm 72. Long may he live. I want him to live because his authority is good. Would your kids say that? I have, I have four daughters. I remember we went to Disneyland once and uh, my, my brother-in-law and his kids and, and me and my kids and my girls were younger at this point and they were still in the Disney princess phase. And um, I remember my brother-in-law were, and I were, were desperate to get to Disneyland at 8 a.m., right when the doors opened, because we wanted to make a dash f- to see Elsa and Anna. Yeah, is that, that's their names, right? Elsa and Anna, Frozen. And uh, we've been told the, hour, the lines are like three hours to get a photo with them. So my brother and I were like, you know, shuffling our family. Come on, come on, you know, on the train, in the car, we're going, we're going to get there. We got to get there 10 minutes early. The gate's open. He and I are like running, sweating, Florida sun, 8 a.m. You've heard about it. <laughs> um, we get there, uh, hour and a half line, All right? What are we doing? We're, we're trying to, I think we're being good dads. You might question my judgment on El Sonano. We can have that conversation. But, but you understand what the heart was, right? And I remember walking around Disneyland, one girl on my shoulders, one on my back, another on my arm, another in the stroller with my wife, again, sweating. I, what am I? I'm trying to be the rock. I'm, I'm there for them. I want them to experience joy. Okay, that's Disneyland. What about Monday morning? What about Monday evening when I'm tired? What about when I just want to be with my wife and these teenagers are coming into my room and they're wanting to talk? It's 11 a.m. p.m. Please, come on. This is, my, this is our time. You, yeah. <laughs> you identify. I appreciate that, brother. But no, I'm, I'm, I'm there to serve them, make them strong. That's my job. Okay, what do you want to talk about, sweetheart? Point three, authority in the fall is, okay, authority in creation and redemption, what did I say? It's a good gift that brings blessing. What about authority in the fall? Authority in the fall is dangerous and it destroys. Like our first parents, we chose an alternative authorization, one who appealed to our supremacy or desire for supremacy. The one who promises loosing without binding, growing without trimming, innovation without stuff. No, you don't need to be constrained. Ah, law. People telling you what to think or do. You can be free. Just go. What you want. Hmm. Short-term gain. I like it. Let's go. And what results is a rebellious and cursed world. We use our authority selfishly and so ineffectually because the world wasn't designed by this such selfishness. Things eventually break apart. And so as things start to break apart as we're living and using our authority selfishly, we begin to force ourselves and even use violence to get what we want because things aren't going the way we want them to go and we get mad about it, right? Cain isn't worshiped for his worship so he kills. Now, I want to do it this way, God. Well, that didn't work out. Okay, I'm going to kill. Sin, friends, in other words, is nothing more or less than the abuse of authority. 
It's the same thing. Adam's bite, Pharaoh's bloodshed, that's why I put them together, are the same thing. It's just Pharaoh had a much bigger hammer to swing, right? Bad authority uses for self. It doesn't give. It's about me, not them. And therefore, bad authority <clears throat> discourages, cripples, sucks dry, burns up, snuffs out, dehumanizes, annihilates. Bad authority is political imperialism, economic exploitation, business monopolization, I'm going to dominate, <clears throat> environmental degradation, slavery and segregation. It is child abuse. Of course, bad authority isn't actually authority in an ironic sense. It's, it's an unjust and illicit assertion of power. Uh, it's a bully's club. Authority is what's been authorized, and those things have not been authorized. God does not authorize abuse or oppression. And of course, bad authority doesn't always use the monstrous, doesn't always wear the monstrous faces of things I, I just described. Bad authority is very sly, very sneaky. It comes in as an angel of light. It comes in with softness and, and empathy. I understand how you're feeling. I can't believe they, they require that of you. That's terrible. Tell you what, listen to me. Follow my guidance. I'm not going to say commandments. My, my guidance. A bad authority is a slickster, a charlatan, a liar. So to speak again to the husbands and the fathers and the pastors and the workplace managers, do you use your authority for your own ends, for your own fame, for your own control? I, I, I've heard, I was a member of Capitol Hill Baptist from 96 till we planted, well, I went away to seminary, but other than that, came back. From 96 till 2018 when it, about a bunch of us left to plant Chevrolet Baptist but in that time, I cannot tell you how many times I heard the brother say, the abuse of authority is a particularly heinous sin. Because not only does it hurt the one you were called to care for, it lies about God and how God uses his authority. Those of you with authority, I want you to feel the weightiness of that. I remember a couple of nights before I got married, I asked Pastor Mark for any final words that we were standing in his kitchen. Any, any final words of advice for me, Mark, before I drive out to Louisville tomorrow and, and, and marry <clears throat> Shannon? And he stopped, he looked at me, and he said, Jonathan, you will be the number one picture of God's authority in her life. Always use your authority to be a blessing to her. Never use your authority to harm her in any way. I live with those words almost every day. Thankful for a good pastor. So even as we keep our eyes on the good authority in creation and redemption, remember timeline of history, 
we also have to keep another one eye here, another eye here on the danger and destruction of authority in the fall. You guys are responsible to keep one eye on each. The blessing of good, the terror of bad. That, that's this world. And I want you to have an eye on each in all of your domains, right? So when was the last time you, you thought and taught about good authority or warned against its abuses? Bethlehem Baptist is a complementarian church as I understand it. I'm a complementarian. I've written and talked about it. But is our complementarianism just about affirming the good? Or is it also about warning against and fighting against and opposing the bad? Well, isn't a good authority both? Isn't a good authority both about affirming the good but also opposing the bad and fighting against the bad? Listen to Psalm 72 again. So verse 15, long may he live, may gold of Sheba be given to him. I, I, it, those are weird verses to the native instinct, right? Who, who says give gold to him? No, we all say give gold to ourselves. But this authority is so good, apparently, you're, you're gonna say give gold to him because I know he'll use that gold and the resource of that gold to do good, make everything flourish. So give gold to him. So, so authority is good. But at the same time, what does Psalm 72 also say? Oh, look back at verse four. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. Is our version of complementarianism also interested in crushing the oppressor? Defending the needy or the especially vulnerable, the children of the needy, it says. Uh, back to culture, our culture, our landscape. Here's the problem from, from my own complementarian perspective. In recent years, it's often been, thank you, it's often been those who denounce authority, whether the pastor's authority or the husband's authority or authority in general, the, those who feel very angsty about authority who have been leading the charge in writing the books and giving the talks, opposing abuse. And I wonder, is that because those of us who affirm the goodness of authority have just kind of vacated that land? In all of our affirmation of the goodness of authority, have we, complementarians like me, have we failed to teach against the bad? Have we, have we failed to make that simultaneously agenda? I'll put that on the agenda so that complementarians are known, man, they're the first to rush out into that terrain in opposition to bad authority and abuse. Uh, an authority that looks like Psalm 72, raises up the needy, crushes the oppressor, brings flourishing and prosperity. Is that how we talk about it? Again, I think complementarians should be the foremost opponents of abuse, the, the most diligent pursuers. I recently saw this tweet. Okay, this is some woman, I don't know her. I saw this, this tweet. She says, okay, period. Even if I fundamentally agree with complementarianism, I could still never marry a man who spends his real time of his life, who spends real time of his life belaboring the point. Seems like a strange hill to die on. 
Her attitude captures something that I feel like is common. People are looking at their Bibles. A lot of Christians are looking at their Bibles and saying, okay, I see this. I'm not going to argue with it. But really, do we need to make such a big deal of this? I think that's a fairly prevalent attitude. And why, why, is, why, why do we think she is saying that? I, I feel pretty confident in guessing. One, she doesn't have a vision for the goodness of authority. The life-giving, prosperity, goodness of authority. Why? Well, I don't Maybe she's not been taught that. Maybe she hasn't experienced that. I, I don't know why, but she doesn't seem to have a, a vision for the goodness. And number two... She's probably not, I'm just guessing, accustomed to hearing complementarians talk about the danger or bad authority and what it means to crush the oppressor. I mean, can you imagine her saying, I could never marry a man who spends real time of his life belaboring how we should defend the cause of the needy of the poor people, give deliverance to the children of the needy. Well, what a strange hill to die on. My guess is she wouldn't say that. So friends, let's, let's talk and teach and pursue and live both. In my early 20s, I was single. I moved to Washington, D.C. I had a fairly high opinion of myself, and I kind of came into Capitol Hill Baptist, and I was kind of the kid at, you know, Wednesday night Bible study, asking persnickety questions to stump the pastor, like I was that guy, you know what I mean? And fairly arrogant, frankly, and I'm a little less arrogant today, so God is gracious. And, and uh, a situation came up in the life of the church where the single pastor at that point, Mark, and there was not yet a, a structure of elders, uh, made a motion for the church, and uh, it failed to pass. It, got, it was supposed to get 75%. It only got like 71%. And it was a big, it was about moving towards elders. And I remember thinking, wow, what's the pastor gonna do? And a few weeks later, <clears throat> he came back and he said, I'm gonna put the same motion in front of you because this, this, he had decided this was for him a hill to die on. And I didn't say that, but uh, he said, but, but I'm gonna have a special members meeting in which you can come and ask questions why I'm doing what I'm gonna doing and I'm gonna explain this to you. And I remember thinking, are you kidding me? The congregation spoke, buddy. I, I voted for it before, I'm voting against it now. Protest vote time. I do not like what you're doing. You're the one who taught me congregationalism, pastor. Right, so I was, I was pretty incensed by that. And I remember I went to this meeting to see what he would say, defending why he was leading in this direction. And, you know, he, he came fairly meekly, honestly. He said, I, you know, I just, I thought long and hard about it. The, uh, to give you a little bit more specificity, the, the church had decided to go to a plurality of elders and the vote was on specific men he was nominating as elders. That's, that's what it was. And he's like, as I stand before God, there's, another, there's not another set of men I, I can put before you. You decided we needed elders. I'm given the ones who I think are qualified before God. And so, as the one elder you have affirmed by, by virtue of joining this church, I'm asking you to trust me. Now, let me just quickly caveat. 
trust me card is not one you should play very often. And I think about the 20 years I've been under him, I've, I've heard him say that maybe just that time. That's, that's not a card to play often. But he played it then. And for me, it was my rich young ruler's moment. What do I have to do to follow you, Jesus? Sell everything and follow me. Oh, he was rich. What do I have to do to follow you, Jesus? Listen to and submit to this turkey. Oh, that's tough. I have a pretty high opinion of myself, my opinions. But that makes sense. Somehow the, the spirit of God was at work in me and I'm like, okay, I'm gonna submit to that. I'll vote for those guys. And I did. Now, let's pan out to the 30,000 foot level of Jonathan's life. Before that moment, persnickety guy in Wednesday night Bible study questions. After that, Jonathan begins to grow in grace and in knowledge and just has a different posture in life in general. And, and little by little, Jonathan starts being given authority, leading a Bible study and, and then becoming a deacon. And I remember getting years later, looking back on that moment, and like, that was like the drastic change in my life. It's when I learned to submit, I actually started to learn how to lead. Evangelicals don't get this. We don't understand this. There was power there, right? Honestly, I might have become a Christian at that moment. I'm not sure when I became a Christian. I was a nominal Christian for years. I'm not sure when I crossed from death to life through the work of the Holy Spirit. It might have been then. As again, as I said, it was my rich young ruler's moment. So you're right. We have a dirty view of submission because there are so many abusive authorities out there who exploit us for their good. And you don't want to be in a church with bad elders. Oh, and I'm pleading with my 15, 14, 12-year-old daughters. I don't care if he is ugly and poor. He's got to be godly, sweetheart. The man you marry. You know, and I, and I warn single, men of, single women of that all the time. You do not want to be under a bad man. I keep talking about all that. What? Okay, I'm, I'm going to do this real fast. I think this is helpful. This is point four. There are at least two different kinds of authority that are, 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 we, need, we need to be aware of in the Bible. We have an authority of, uh, these are just philosophical, these are terms, it's probably better terms, but we'll call it authority of command and authority of counsel, okay? And I think it's, it's useful to understand these two kinds of authority depending on the domain that you're in. What's the same about these two kinds of authority? Well, in, in, in both kinds of authority, you have the moral right, moral right to command, to, to, to as it were, bind the conscience to say, you must do this. And when I say, you must do this, the person who's called to submit has, has a moral, um, um, the morally obligation to, to do it, okay? In, in both kinds of authority. So it's real authority because it imposes a moral obligation. That's how they're the same. Well, how are they, how are they different? 
the moral right to enforce. There is an enforcement mechanism, no right to enforce. God will enforce it on the last day, but here on earth you, you don't have a, a, an enforcement mechanism. This might still be a little unclear. I think it'll become clear as we, as we illustrate. Let's, let's, let's think of a few different kinds. Illustrate. Shun. Okay. The government. Does the government have the right to make commands? Yes. Does it have the right to enforce or not? Yes, and, and, and the Bible gives us one word to summarize. So it's an authority of command. What is the one word in the Bible? It's enforcement mechanism. Sword. Okay, what about a parent of young children? Do the parents of young children, four-year-olds, five-year-olds, authority of command or counsel? Hey, it's one or the other. <laughs> Command. Can they enforce it? What's the one word in the Bible? It's enforcement mechanism. Right. So parents, three-year-old. I'm not talking about 21-year-olds. Um, you need to go to bed. I don't want to. I'm your dad. You have to. Why? Because I said, all right? <laughs> Congregations, churches, commander council. In parentheses, hint, I'm a congregationalist. Congregations, commander council, the whole church. Ask yourself the question who excommunicates? I'm looking for a brave person to volunteer an answer. Command. And what's the one word, elders, you can jump in because you heard me talk about these things yesterday? Keys. By which we excommunicate. We enforce. Okay, next one. Husbands. Commander counsel. I'm just letting the suspense linger. <laughs> you better say counsel, guys. Can you think of any place the Bible gives a husband an enforcement mechanism? No. What about elders? I'll help you out. Counsel. They can appeal to the church and go to the church and say, we need to use the keys here and remove this person. But they, you, you can't show up to the elder meeting on a Thursday night and them say, you're out. They do not have the authority to do that. So Paul appeals, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, the power of the Lord Jesus, Corinthian church, hand this man over to Satan. Husbands have an authority of counsel. They have no moral right to enforce this, their command. And, and and I want to explain why that's significant in the last few minutes we have. One, two, three, four. Four, four properties of, of what an authority of counsel for these two is like. 
How does that impact how we exercise husbands, elders? How does that impact how we exercise authority? Four words. First word, patience. It requires patience. It forces you to be long-suffering and tender and patient. It requires you to live with your wife and your congregation in an understanding way. It requires you to woo her and be winsome with her because you can't ask for immediate outcomes. Go to bed because I said, and I mean now. I'm looking for an outcome now. Obey me, that terrible phrase, with a hap- all the way right away with a happy heart. You can at least get the all the way right away. The happy heart's a little, you guys have heard that phrase. Does that go around your church? Yes, no? Anyway. But I can require that as a dad. I can't require that as a, of a member of a wife right away. No, because I'm, I'm here to play for the long game. It's got to be patient. That's why Paul tells Timothy to teach with all patience. What good is a forced decision from your wife? What good is a forced decision from a member of the church, a member of the new covenant? You want new covenant hearts creating flowers of their own because it's a born again heart. You want your wife responding to you out of her love and desire because you've, you've been leading her and living with her in an understanding way. A forced decision for these two isn't worth much, right? First word, patience. Second word, honor. An authority of counsel which God gives to husbands and elders requires to honor those they lead as positionally equal. So a police officer or a parent of a young child will sometimes override the agency of the persons they're leading for the sake of protecting or instructing, right? A force, police officer to protect is gonna force. A parent of a young child is gonna force in order to teach and care for and, and protect. Not so with a husband or an elder. You're, you are never called to override the agency. An authority of counsel is, is true authority because, because God is required and he will enforce it, but you don't get to. You don't get to override the agency of the ones you are leading. In the here and now, that means an authority of counsel, a husband's authority, an elder's authority is particularly suited to partnership conversation, collegiality, helping each other to understand and work things out and use collective wisdom in in coming to a decision insofar as one can. Because it's not relying finally on the ability to coerce. It requires involvement. It requires in the final analysis consent. And in that way, it, it is an abuse preventer. So patience honor. I'm honoring the church members. I'm honoring my wife. Third, presence. It requires presence. An authority of command doesn't require presence. At least it does to enforce it, but not to, not to give the command. The government can be in Washington or issue these commands and well, we got to do it. It sends, makes an announcement. You know, the CEO sends out an announcement. The whole organization has to conform. And we don't think less, it's just, okay, that's that's what we're going to do. But an authority of of counsel, husband and elder, you're not dictating from afar, right? You 
you get involved, you're there, you, you, you look at the body language, you, you, you read the eyebrows, you, you understand the weaknesses and the strengths of the person you're leading you, and you, don't, you try not, if, if getting to maturity takes 10 steps, you only ask for one or two steps. You, you don't want to exasperate. You want to be very careful. Living with her in an understanding way, living with them in an understanding way. If an authority of command leads towards God's transcendence, an authority of counsel leads towards God's Imminence. It's present. And fourth and finally, authority of counsel is a sin absorber. Sin absorber. It bears the costs. I came not to be served, but to serve. And give my life as a ransom for many. Your job as a husband, elder, is to absorb the cost when and where you can, the consequences of their sin, the consequences of their folly. You don't retaliate. I remember when I first got married, when I first got my early years of marriage, I really struggled with my wife's sin. My wife's sin provoked me to sin. And I remember being interviewed by one of the elders about being an elder, and he said, hey, what's your biggest sin struggle? And immediately I knew, I'm impatient with my wife's impatience. Her sin provokes me. And I struggle with that. Now, let me offer a contrast of myself with another old friend, an old, an old pastor who, whose wife was going through thyroid surgery, and so her emotions were, you know, fluctuating, let's say, quite a bit. And, uh, and uh, I remember him saying, oh, call Susie, call her Susie. Oh, Susie knows she can chew in my arm. I'll be okay. Now, should Susie chew on her husband's arm? Well, no, I mean... In time, he wants to help her control those things, and she needs to learn to control her emotions in those ways. But, but he's, not, he's not taking offense. He's not going to react and lead her in a reaction. How dare you disrespect me? How dare you dishonor me? No, I'm, I have nothing left to prove, right, says the healthy, happy husband. I have nothing left to prove because all of my proof is accomplished in Christ. My glory is Christ. My justification is Christ. And I'm, I'm just here to serve you and love you and lay down my life for you. So I'm going to try to lead us towards Christ the best I can. But, but, as, but as offenses are rendered, it's not some threat to my ego. There's nothing worse than being under a fearful authority, right? You want them to be a confident authority. What do I mean by confidence? I mean Psalm 2 Samuel 23, when one rules in the fear of God, he is like. Right. You're a sin absorber. You're a sin absorber to you with your kids too. You're not saying everything that you could say. You're not correcting everything you could correct because you're moderating your responses for where they're at, what they're ready for. Because what is your goal? Your goal is Creation authoring, right? Vitality, green grass growing. If you have questions, I'm happy to talk to you. I'll stand in the back about this. Let me pray and close us. Father God, we give you thanks and praise for your perfect use of authority. You bind what needs to be bound. You loose what needs to be loosed. You command what needs to be commanded. You set free what needs to be set free. You moderate your 
use of authority perfectly for the good of your people and the glory of your name. And we give you praise. Father, we pray that you would help us to hate bad authority, help us to take the authority you've given each one of us seriously and be good stewards of it. Understand it's always under you and in accountability and help us use it for the good of those we're called to lead and serve. Help the husbands here, help the parents here this afternoon, this evening, use their authority for the good of those they lead. Help those who go to work tomorrow and this week and have have people they manage, help them to think to themselves, Lord, how can I use my authority for the good of the secretary, of the account manager, of the, the, the sales team? of the people working in my office? How can I make them better, stronger? Put, put, put that ambition on our hearts, we ask, in all of our domains. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.